Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with women in ETFs. We sit down every other week with some of the smartest women in the ETF business and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy here with my colleague, Lara Krigger. Hello. And today we are talking about defined outcome investing and also some big picture themes with none other than Joanne Hill, Chief Advisor for Research and Strategy at CBOVEST and also a founding member and first co-president of Women in ETFs. Thanks for joining us, Joanne. Thank you both, and a huge thank you and ETF.com for the idea for this podcast series. Uh, you know, Women in ETFs has always had a priority to uh, increase the visibility of, of our women experts in this industry. They've been around from the early, early days, and it's terrific to, uh, to, get, to see you put this, this program together. I know you probably have a long list of <laughs> folks to talk on it on the lunch, and uh, I'm honored to be here today. Uh, look forward to telling the story of my role in, in, in helping CBOVEST kind of create this whole category of option-based strategies uh, in the form of, of the regulated fund products and ETFs. So. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so let's start there. I mean, you, you have worn many hats in this business. <laughs> right. Um, so before we dive into defined outcome investing, tell us a little bit about your journey in the ETF industry. Yeah, well, I actually started uh, in finance and academics in the 1980s. I spent a few years as a professor, and uh, I saw the opportunity to work in my field of interest, which was quantitative and derivatives on Wall Street. And uh, in the 80s, it was great timing. I spent uh, 20 years uh, at investment banks in research and strategy, mostly at Goldman Sachs. And, and I worked with exclusively institutional investors, pension funds, endowments, asset managers, hedge funds, and help them learn to use derivatives and index products in their in their investment themes. It was such a great opportunity to connect with such knowledgeable and experienced investors. I worked with them on risk management, market access, and of course, uh, there were quite bull markets in the 90s, so there was a lot of interest in hedging and protection strategies. Uh, from very large investors. Um, at that point, there wasn't sufficient liquidity or availability of exchange traded products. And so most of the strategies were done over the counter with credit risk of investment banks. Um, and also, even for high net worth investors, this was the age when structured products were starting. In the late 90s, of course, ETFs came along. SPY was originally a niche product, but when iShares came came into play, they really started ETFs as a major product category. And soon after, Vanguard got into the business. So I had a great seat to see this happen. Um, in fact, at, at, at the urging of, uh, of some of our clients, uh, Barbara Mueller and I wrote the first guide to ETFs, I think in 1999, a, a publication that became the basis for the, for the book I eventually did with with Dave Nadig and Matt Hogan for the uh, research found- CFA Research Foundation. Required reading for any ETF. <laughs> <laughs> Comprehensive guide to ETFs on the CFA Research Foundation website, free. Um, and, and what's co- so cool about the ETF industry is from the beginning, there were 
prominent women leaders. Of course, Patty Dunn was the CEO of BGI and built iShares. Kathleen Moriarty as the first lawyer. Debbie, Debbie Furr covered ETFs for Morgan Stanley. I did at Goldman. So, uh, so this is par partially why um, you know, we are where we are today with such a successful women in ETFs organization. But after, you know, I went through the bear markets of the early 2000s and then 2008, and I really felt it was time to move away from the sell side. And after the financial crisis, I said, gee, what's going to be successful? What's going to emerge from this as a product that people will want? And my conclusion was ETFs and exchange traded derivatives. So I found ProShares Pro was a client. They were doing both. They had futures incorporated into ETFs and mutual funds. So I decided that was a good place for me. And um, also they were open to strategies based on volatility and options. And in fact, did launch uh, the first VIX futures ETF. So, so that was a good role there for my first <laughs> buy side or asset management job. How how did you go from ProShares to Cebo Vest, uh, which we should clarify here, Cebo is a minority partner in Vest, right? It's not um, it's not a Cebo company. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so Vest is an asset management company. Cebo, uh, in fact, is a part of how I got involved. So I'll kind of cover that <laughs> in a minute. But basically. I was at ProShares wanting to uh, work on option-based uh, ETFs and, and strategies. And while I was there, I actually, in the same group I was in, in strategy, uh, were two individuals, Karan Sood and, and Jeff Chang. And they, uh, they were working on incorporating, the idea of incorporating structured products into ETFs. So they sort of shared my passion that there was an opportunity uh, for these option-based strategies. But um, ProShares, you know, unfortunately decided to go another route. They went more into smart beta and alternatives. So Jeff and Karan left to start what was called Vest at the time. And the concept was to, uh, they were going to use UITs and other fund, regulated fund products to, to incorporate the option strategies. But so I followed them. But what happened was in early 2016, SIBO, who had a small fintech portfolio decided to invest in Vest. <laughs> so the name, that's where the name SIBO Vest comes from. Um, and so they they had a small investment, uh, which is, a, you know, a, a, they're basically still a partner, but a minority, uh, a minority owner at this point, right? But we kept the name, I think it fits with the option-based approach. And so I signed on in 2016, I, uh, as head of research and strategy, um, because they were very close. They were already working on indexes with SIBO in this area. And also they had a mutual fund, which they launched in April. That was a buffer protection. I, I'm sorry, in September 2016, that was a buffer protect mutual fund. So the vision of SIBOVEST always was sort of mutual funds, CITs, managed accounts, ETFs. Um, there's a lot of regulatory filing work involved, uh, developing infrastructure, using for the flex options, and so on. So with the ETFs, uh, it, it was really a desire to be very careful about making sure that when we got involved in the ETF space, we had 
the right platform for distribution, hence the partnership with First Trust, and also the right infrastructure. So we felt that being able to do in-kind transfer of options was really important. And so in a way, we, you know, we, we, we really um, started the ETF line of the strategies just last fall with First Trust being the, the handling the distribution and helping with the education. Well, let's let's get into that a little bit more. So, defined outcome investing uh, is probably something that I get uh, next to energy ETFs the most questions about from readers. Um, it's it's a fairly common strategy in institutional circles, but how it all works uh, can be a little tricky to understand for somebody who's not in it every day and and as familiar with it. So I was wondering if you could walk us through, walk the listeners through how a defined outcome ETF works. You know, what's a buffer? What what do you mean by caps? Like why is there an outcome period and so on and so forth? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um and the even the terminology is sometimes confusing. Yeah. So when we started the strategies in the first indexes the SIBO indexes are called, and we still call it target outcome. <laughs> so there's two names, there's target, there's defined outcome. And, um, and so either one, uh, either one works, I think very well for describing the strategies. Um, but I just, I think before I get into the mechanics, it's important to just have the context of where they fit in portfolios. Cause I think then the mechanics make the most sense. Um, so, so always, well, for many, many decades anyway, institutional investors and other investors use stock bond asset allocation, right, for risk management, the 60-40, tilting a bit more into fixed income if you wanted to reduce risk. And then kind of within the stock category, within the bond category, you picked, you went passive, you went active. But certainly within stocks, almost all the strategies in the stock bucket had a beta of one or close to one. Um, so what happened then with 60-40 is investors became aware that still that meant more than 90% of the risk is coming from equities, even if you have a balanced stock bond mix. And so there's only so much you can do um, to reduce that downside exposure to the equity market when it happens. Uh, yes, there are low volatility smart beta ETFs, but they're still going to move down with the market as, we, as we've seen. Mm -hmm. so, so what the mechanics of, uh, of buffer protection strategies really are aimed at dealing with the downside risk of a of a market, usually a market cap weighted index. So there's a reference index like the S&P 500, uh, or in some cases, there are also products on other, on other asset class benchmarks. But the good part is you get the full weights and exposure of that reference index on the upside to a cap. But there, the, the key thing, and the, the, most of the questions in education that's important to do revolves around the, the target period and the target range or the defined period and defined range. So there's, two, there's, so that's what's key. There's two targets. Usually there's a, there's the period. Usually that's about a year and that's when the strategy is rolled. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's why 
the ETF products are designated by calendar month. They have a calendar month in their tickers, right? Most mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when the outcome period ends and a new 12-month strategy is put in place. So that's a very important date. And most people select it either in conjunction with their investment horizon or based on how much downside protection they want in the near term. So the second target is what is the range. So there's a downside range and the range is expressed in the products in the product features in percentage terms. Okay. So it could buffer the first 10% or minus five to minus 30%. But I like to think of the buffers in terms of index levels. So S&P 500 index levels, right? Because on the date that the strategy is rolled or put in place, that's when those that range is selected. Okay, so it's the 10% uh, range down at that point in time. And if you go to the fact sheets or the, the websites, you know, you will always see what the what the reference like S&P 500 index levels are that correspond to that product. Okay. And um, and and then so those so that's the downside range. And then at the same time, there is an upside cap which is also selected, you can see it in percentage terms or at a specific reference index level, and you are capping your returns above that level at the end of the target outcome period. Okay. Does that make sense? Or <laughs> Absolutely. Right. It's, it's a little bit of a fixed target and yet right. a moving target day to day because yes. it depends on where the market is. Where so the, right, where it's right. confusing. So each product has a fixed date and a fixed range in terms of S&P 500 levels. But then what you want to look at as an investor is you want to look at where the S&P 500 is today relative to that target downside protection range as well as the cap. And, and that is why if you go to the websites of the ETF providers like First Trust, you see uh, very good tools to look at that. Use a chart, you know, where you can see the performance history of the the target outcome ETF and how it has protected mm -hmm. when the market fell this year, for example. You can also see where you are relative to that cap and relative to the buffer range. Mm -hmm. But the other um, key thing to keep in mind as an investor is how far you are relative to the end of that target outcome period, right? Right. Because that's when the, you know, the protection is fully realized. Yeah, it doesn't do any good to just hold it for a few months. You've got to hold it for the entire period. Right. Well, what will happen is, so let's just use an example of, let's say there are buffer protection ETFs out there with months of August, November, February, right? Which, ha which happened to be true. So if you got a decline in July, the buffer protection strategy that rolls in August would give you the most protection for that decline, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Assuming you're, you're close to the buffer range. The November and the February would still give you a degree of protection, but because they're farther from the end of their target outcome period, they might not uh, perform quite as well as one that would roll in August. Right. Okay. So that's the key thing to keep in mind. 
So if you if you have a specific view on when you think the downside risk is occurring, it's best to select the ETF that corresponds right to that to that market view. If you don't, you can diversify across them. You can always just keep them so you have one with less than six months to the point where it rolls. There's a lot of different things you can do depending on whether you want to be tactical or strategic. So that's, uh, and I think that the uh, First Trust and the the other uh, ETF sponsors in this space, uh, they really do provide a lot of information to help you understand that aspect to the products. So looking, looking back to this year, I mean, at the end of the day, these products are, you are basically willing to give up a little bit of upside potential to make sure you're a little bit protected on the downside. So it's really for the more risk-averse investor. So when we had a, a period of volatility that really spiked earlier this year, how did these ETFs work? Did they really deliver on what they set out to do? Right, right. Uh, yeah, and it's it's always... I, I don't like to wish for market declines, but uh, you know, since we started managing these products in 2016 with a mutual fund, it it was good for us to have experience of periods of down markets, so we could you know illustrate how how well how well they worked and how whether they reduced downside participation as advertised, and you know and they have and you can. You can also see that in the indexes that are made available on the SIBO website that you know cover the defined outcome and the target outcome space, because those, some of it's back-tested data, but they go back even through the financial crisis. And when you look at them, if you look at the, yes, there's a target outcome period, but broadly speaking, they mostly have betas or market exposure between about 50% and 70% or 0.5 and 0.7 kind of on an ongoing basis, right? And, uh, you know, the last episode, of course, in March was the deepest downside move we've seen. At worst, I think the S&P was down more than 25%. Uh, And across the board, I would say these products outperformed by about 10%, you know, during that market decline, uh, regardless of the timeframe of their target outcome and regardless of their buffer range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the underlying market has remained quite liquid. There's a lot of flows. Uh, in fact, uh, in the first trust products, which were just launched uh, in last fall, there's over a billion in assets have come in just in a, in a few month period that they've been around. So I think that it sh- it's illustrated they can support both flows and a down market. Mm-hmm. So. One of the things I find really interesting is that um, defined outcome ETFs uh, have been among some of the fastest growing ETFs in the space this year. Uh, my colleague, our colleagues who meet, uh, Roy, did a story about the fastest growing ETFs and two of the SIBOVEST defined outcome products, uh, DOG and DNOV, uh, those are the tickers, were among the fastest growing uh, ETFs of the year. So I, I'm just curious from your peers perspective. Uh, why are, do you think that these particular funds have been striking such a chord? Is it about the timing of the outcome period? Is it because we've seen such crazy markets lately? Is it like, what's going on here? Well, you know, I, I have this 
this saying that I've been using for years, which is that everyone says there's a long term invest they're long term investors until markets get volatile and start declining, yeah. and then they become short term. <laughs> so I think that uh, when you see the type of markets we saw in Feb, well, both the huge rally in January and then an early February, and then the decline. It's sort of a wake-up call that, gee, maybe I should evaluate my investment strategy and see what else I could be doing. Okay, so I think there was an openness to to, to trying some new things and different things uh, when investors saw all everything being so correlated to the downside, and um, and so and so these products were launched in August and November 2019. So of course they were coming from a small base and they grew to to be two of the largest uh, defined outcome ETFs out there. I think uh, DNO is, or DFEB is the biggest. The D refers to a deep buffer. So they were popular because investors wanted that minus five to minus 30% protection. And also the range they covered was approximately 295 to kind of 220 on the SPY, or that would be, I guess, on the S&P, you know, you know, Twenty nine hundred to uh, uh, to twenty one fifty twenty two hundred. So the protection range was large, and it covered really where the downside was happening. And then, you know, I think the the education. You know, we we were all ready. Those of us that had these products, uh, and especially working with First Trust, to educate the advisors and be out there and giving them the tools and talking to them about how they work. That that was critical as well. Now, what's interesting is now we see some, some shifting out of the deep buffers. Now that we've had the market rally in the last few weeks, we've seen more of the, the interest in products that have the zero to minus 10% protection. Um, and also interest around the election period, of course, November being the presidential election, people wanting a hedge through that time frame. Well, shall we look a little bit ahead um, outside of this space, given your your experience? You were a pro shares when derivatives were taking off. You moved to CBOVES when defined outcome is all the rage. You obviously have a keen eye for growth opportunities in this <laughs> industry. So, you know, when you look ahead, where do you see green spaces uh, for innovation, for new products, for usage? Well, I think, you know, coming back to the to the target outcome or defined outcome space, I mean, we're definitely in the early innings here. There's room for growth in institutional use of ETFs, right? That they have long institutions have long been using protection strategies, but more uh, done over the counter, not in ETF products. So I think that's an area for growth. Also more dynamic strategies with uh, defined outcome ETFs, sort of some that might switch for uh, across what is the best range, what is the best target period, or diversified strategies across these. Uh, that's an area within this space. The other space I think that is going to be major, it's already major, but it's gonna be, I think fixed income ETFs are going to be as big as equity ETFs. Um, so this was the fixed income market, of course, was a market that was very segmented, not very transparent, 
right? Active management thrive because indexes were, you know, full of all sorts of flaws and idiosyncrasies. But, and now that we've been through uh, this year and we've seen how uh, HYG and the other fixed income ETFs have really helped with liquidity issues, how the Fed is getting involved in using them to stabilize markets. Um, I think that fixed income investing is really on the verge of becoming transparent, exchange traded, lower cost, and the ETFs are the engine of change there. So I'm, I've always been excited about them, but I continue to be. Great. Uh, well, okay. So Joanne, in just a, the the last minute or two that we have left, uh, you know, where do you see big picture the future of women in ETFs as an organization going? Well, yeah, we, you know, the world has changed, and uh, you know, women in ETFs uh, grew as with all our chapters in major cities and a lot of educational events in those cities where uh, women got together and men and and networked and. Uh, both professional development and, and, and industry topics. So what we, of course, with this disrupt, disruption see is we have, uh, we have to go more virtual. Um, we have uh, already had that in place with a mentoring program that we're going to expand, uh, you know, in, uh, in cyberspace. Uh, we're working on sort of panels for on career transitions. And we've encouraged all the chapters to come up with their own uh, sort of uh, virtual uh, events. And, and one of the things we're excited about is we've never been able to engage uh, our members that worked in these major cities to, to the degree we would have liked to. And now we can do that because we'll just have more of a balance between face-to-face events as well as uh, online events. So that's that's um, and that's obviously a direction we're we're going to go. And the speakers forum I think that we have will also be valuable to anyone you know putting together virtual events because we have a wealth of of women in, with different types of expertise to talk on, on different topics. Uh, and there are new issues, right? Work-life balance when work is at home. <laughs> there's lots of, uh, there's positives, but there's negatives in, in being able to have more flexible work environments. And, and we hope to be a place where people come to talk about that and work on solutions. Great, great. Well, it's a pretty exciting future ahead and for sure. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Joanne, for the great conversation and for joining us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It was wonderful having you. So for more on defined outcome ETFs or any ETF topic, or to catch up on past episodes, please visit us at ETF.com. And for more information about how to get involved in women in ETFs, please visit womeninetfs.com. You can write to us with your questions, your comments, your feedback, your thoughts at ETF Working Lunch. That is all one word at ETF.com. On behalf of Cynthia Murphy, myself, and the rest of the ETF.com team, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next episode.